You're listening to Digital Divides, Season 3 of All Things Equal. I'm your host, Verity Firth. Indigenous Australians are our first engineers. We are still to recognise the full depth of Indigenous technological achievements. But we know that our current tech revolution is being designed by a white Silicon Valley. Far from the utopic vision most of us hoped for at the beginning of the digital age, many technologies have seen discrimination entrenched. Tech will touch all of us, but a one-size-fits-all approach has already proved disastrous. What does technology look like when we include Indigenous knowledge systems? And what are the technologies that Indigenous people actually want for themselves? Our producer today, as always, is Dan Butler. Maralinga Test Range in the stark, wide-open spaces of South Australia. Operation Buffalo involved setting up a village for servicemen taking part. And the team of scientists was headed by Sir William Penny, seen arriving to supervise and observe the atomic explosions. Five, four... Three, two, one, zero. And the bomb went off. The smoke went up. Oh, look over there. That turned into mushroom. But next day it was really dusty. Smoke. We wasn't thinking about radiation. That was poison to kill us. In September 1956, one of the world's newer technologies, a nuclear bomb, was being tested at Maralinga, 800 kilometres northwest of Adelaide. It had the same explosive strength of the one dropped on Hiroshima a decade before. Six more bombs would be tested over the next year. Despite several clean-up operations since, the area at Maralinga still remains deadly radioactive. What do you expect would be the outcome if you plonk a whole group of, for example, British um, nuclear scientists in the middle of the desert and, um, and not allow them to have any engagement whatsoever with community or even um, the outside world? Now, that is a real-life example And that's, you know, that's what we know as Maralinga. This is Angie Abdilla. I'm a Palawa woman from Tasmania, a Trollawoy woman, and I'm the CEO of Old Ways New. The the results of Maralinga are really still being experienced today. You know, we know what the result is for creating these really, you know, um, isolated, um, experiments on on um, society and the environment. We know how that works. We know the results of that. And so technology and develop, the development of AI and what the cultural practices that happen within Silicon Valley are so scary. Yeah, so accountability, knowing, you know, what the, you know, how to 
be responsible in the design and development of technology and, and your role and the, the governance of um, these new emerging technologies is super important, but I don't think people are really thinking about the, the role of culture. If there's one thing that can be said about the tech revolution, it's that it's happening quickly. We're often too captivated by the exciting possibilities of new inventions to question what some of the more sinister implications could be. So much so that sometimes we impose no regulation whatsoever on these powerful tools and technologies. Few guessed the potential for Facebook to unite not only old friends, but also conspiracy theorists and white supremacists. That fun new app that transforms your face also stores a record of it on a server in who knows which country. But we rarely pause to consider these consequences of new technology, like the spreading ripples from a rock thrown in a lake. Angie says it's symptomatic of Western culture. I mean, typically within a a Western worldview, what we see is knowledge evolving within these silos. And it's kind of, I guess, a result of the Enlightenment project, you know, where, um, you know, where arts and sciences and, um, and so forth, those knowledges have, have grown within these very kind of distinct um, silos. Indigenous knowledge systems where science, religion and art exist together without clear distinction offer a new way to think about technology, both its development and its use. It can be summed up in a simple principle. Country-centred design. And so that always starts with knowing whose country you're on, building relationships with traditional custodians and, and local elders and community, and then working with those uh, custodians and elders. And when I say working with, I mean actually paying people as specialist knowledge holders to um, define what the problem is and then create the solution together through understanding what the traditional knowledges of that country um, are and developing up a rich tapestry of those knowledges from a range of different perspectives. And then, only then, in the prototyping of such a a, um, solution, we work out what the appropriate technology is. Never, ever technology first, always culture, country first. Including and being led by Indigenous people in these conversations around technology is necessary. We're all feeling the consequences of a rushed tech revolution, but we're not feeling them evenly. Today's tech writes racial bias in facial recognition software. Researchers say the most popular algorithms misidentify minorities far more often than whites. Researchers think the bias may be related the images used to train the software. Recognition. However, algorithms like viruses can spread bias on a massive scale at a rapid pace. We saw that these algorithms are um, effective to different degrees. So what demographic is it mostly effective on? White men. And who are the primary engineers and designers of these algorithms? Definitely white men. It was a Friday night. Um, I was at home in my then home in Collingwood and, um, you know, uh, had the TV on and had on Facebook like most people do and um, started to see 
a story unfold on Facebook about um, some technology that had been developed. Christopher Lawrence is an associate professor at the School of Computer Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. There was a campaign to stop this um, app being rolled out and to be taken down. And the app was called Survival 3 Australia and was about how you could bludgeon to death an Aborigine. Oh, I, look, I was shocked as an Aboriginal person, but um, ecstatic as a researcher. I realised once I got over my initial shock, which was about 10 seconds, and realised, oh no, this is good. I, I started taking screenshots because I thought, well, this is the evidence that we need to show the government that this is real, right? And that racism happens not only in the physical sense, it can happen in the avatar sense as well and in that world of technology. Christopher came to the same realisation as Angie, that to develop technology that would serve Indigenous communities, that he and other software engineers had to go on to country. So we've been going out to these communities, um, working with Indigenous communities to design the um, technology where we've been using butcher's paper and whiteboards and just talking to people, what, what, would, what do they want um, in an app? If they had this app, what were the features and functionalities? What would it look like? What's the purpose of it? And, and, and how do we embed Indigenous knowledge and, and cultural ethics and values into the app? The end result was an app designed to connect Indigenous people to each other and to services. It's called This My Mob. So This My Mob has two primary functions. One is about social connection and the other one is about connecting with agencies that are working in this space. So we basically brought a version, I guess, well, you know, to put it in a nutshell, it's an Aboriginal version of Facebook and an Aboriginal version of LinkedIn. But that wasn't our initial plan. That just evolved (laughs) from the research. The app was the result of significant consultation with communities. One thing was raised repeatedly in the different communities Christopher and his team visited. Well, they wanted to make sure that Indigenous identity was central and that uh, the, the identity, well, identities, I should say, um, because um, the identities came through the different types of communities that we went to there uh, and different language groups that, that um, exist, uh, but also those t- kind of structures where um, people can, kinship structures where people can and can't marry each other. So they have all, and they have their totems and they have their song lines and they have their dances. So these are all representations of their identities. And this is what we had to take away and and think about and process and, and embed in the design. It's exactly this kind of consultation that's lacking in Silicon Valley, says Angie. Absolutely. I mean, there's uh, there's been so many different examples of of an AI, of AI being um, not being able to pick up a person with darker skin tones. There's there's just so many examples of I guess uh, racial discrimination coming through the design and development of these technologies. Um, we see it in the um, 
types of this AI that's being used to within the judiciary system within the states that is sentencing that is um, seeing more black people going to jail. You know, there's there's so many different examples. But what we have to come back to is that you know, these prejudices are, are baked into these algorithms from the very earliest uh, conception of some of their, these processes. The reality is, is that the, all of Silicon Valley don't get it. You know, they this the people that are actually responsible for the design and development of these algorithms, they don't get it. But there are companies closer to home working on including those knowledges in technology development. Sitting in front of me is a card. On the front is a drawing, a traditional Indigenous artwork of a figure from The Dreaming. What we've done is... Um, on the back, you can see um, Neville's information and the artist behind it and his story. He's, he's the artist. This is yes. Ben Bowen, CEO of Shared Path, a not-for-profit helping Indigenous communities utilise technology and a proud Wiradjuri man. Neville drew the artwork sitting in front of me. But holding my phone over the image... The figure comes to life on my screen, 3D now and in colour, and dancing a traditional dance. The artwork can be replicated on any surface, coffee cups or t-shirts, or bark or the traditional rock canvas, and still interact with a digital device. So there's a number of these that we've used, um, and community is starting to look at how they can represent their own information into that, and then using augmentation to bring those stories to life so we no longer have to have tourists treading over those sites or going into remote places where they're at risk um, of you know cars breaking down or damage to the site and then they can actually buy the cards or the t-shirt or whatever they want to imprint the um, information on and then they can actually have that story to take home with them so then it's spreading the stories it's giving people access to the culture and the richness but it's community driven it's not someone coming in and telling the story for them. They're the storytellers. Ben says digitising cultural elements goes beyond preserving them because, of course, it's a living culture. In fact, digitising that culture offers concrete benefits to our society now, as a recent example shows. It's a really key one for us that we don't want to create a digital museum at the expense of the physical world. We want to create something in the digital sphere that builds that um, richness that's on country so it goes into what we've just gone through this summer with bushfires and stuff like that we, we can use the digital spheres now to embed a lot of our cultural knowledge around burning models into a digital sphere and prove and get data out of that so that when New South Wales fire or, or the government comes and talks to us we can actually have that data behind us not just a story so it's it's not a way for us to, um, I guess, validate that information because we know in our communities we don't need that validation, but it gives us a really rich model that we can then use that in a range of ways so that we don't need a third party to come in and, and tell us we're right. We can just actually run it ourselves and get those models up and running a lot quicker. These digital models of Indigenous knowledge offer another exciting possibility. Silicon Valley is rightly chastised for limiting the data that informs their tech development 
As we discussed before, facial recognition trained only on white faces only works on white faces. Ben says including Indigenous Australians in the process offers benefits to them and to the technology itself. Our Indigenous communities um, making up around 5% of the world's population are really not represented in any of the data models. So the knowledge and the perspectives that our mobs bring to it are totally missed into all the development and it gives a huge richness. So it can be as simple as looking at... um, data sets, how we understand water flows, land management, biodiversity, um, and how we look at um, pollutants or changes over time. And the way that we do talk about this is, um, Sydney in particular, we talk about uh, weather models, which are based off roughly about 150 to 180 years worth of numbers. Our communities down here are talking 20,000 years worth of numbers that we can actually build into these data models, which gives us a richer data text to start working from. Looking back on Indigenous knowledges can enrich the information we use to power our technology today. But Ben is more excited about what tech can do for Indigenous futures. A lot of this comes back into when we talk about um, human rights and citizenships and stuff like that. There's We fight so hard for the physical sovereignty or how we express ourselves in the physical world we have a very heavy conversation that we have with all of our community saying sometimes the physical sovereignty or the the physical um, rights that we're fighting so hard for we can replicate that world really quickly in the digital space and then show people what it is and take away a lot of the fear from it so that we can actually start creating the systems we want in, in the Australian setting, I guess, in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, when we're talking about sovereignty and we've got the Uluru voice and, and the statement from the heart and there's these statements that go out and there's governments and, and non-government people that come back and call them third chambers of, parliament, of parliament and and try to create a fear around them, we can actually start setting up digital spheres and digital communication to represent that so that people can actually see them and experience those methods and be empowered by them in a digital sphere which is a lot less regulated and quickly and then that way we can use that model as a proof for the physical world and then look to implement them later on. Technology has ruptured the world as we knew it. It has brought undoubted benefits but also provoked massive instabilities as the reach and influence and power of technology grows ever larger Can we continue to invent first and ask questions later, including Indigenous people and their knowledge, practices and culture in the development of technology will stem the entrenching of injustices we've already seen and could go some way to ensuring new technologies are actually ones we want around. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the you know, when we're talking about technology in its broadest sense, beyond zeros and ones, um, we are in the best place here on this continent to exp- to look at the world's best case of, um, examples of technology design and development. You know, we're the oldest living people on this planet with the longest continuum of culture on the driest continent on this earth. So, of course, if you think about the thousands and thousands of generations that have not just survived this dry continent, but have been nurtured by this country. But it's not just country nurturing us, it's a symbiotic relationship. It's a, we are in a relational um, 
we're in uh, it's a you know we're in relation with country it's part of us and we're part of it thanks for listening to all things equal a collaboration between the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion at the University of Technology, Sydney, and 2SER 107.3. The podcast is produced by Dan Butler. Thanks to supervising producer Sharon Davis and Amelia Navasquez for sound design support. 2SER sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, country that was never ceded. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe or maybe give us a review so other people can find us. I'm Verity Firth. Till next time.